pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, please take your Bibles and turn to the prophecy of Zechariah. You know, one of those minor prophets. And as I've said on a few occasions, just turn to Matthew and then flip pages backwards. You'll be there soon. Zechariah, and we're going to be looking at chapter 3 today. One short chapter nestled in, a, in the middle of a, one of the minor prophets, but I think one of, the most, uh, one of the most remarkable and powerful passages in the entire Old Testament. Zechariah and chapter 3, listen to this. This is the very Word of God. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And that is the reading of God's word. Let's pray that he'll bless it to us tonight. Father, may your word go forth tonight here uh, among us, not just in word, but also in power. Bless it to us. Exalt your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous branch. And we pray in his name. Amen. Over the years that I was growing up, uh, my grandmother would uh, come and visit us from time to time, and it seems to me that on at least a few occasions when she came, my parents didn't tell my sister or me in advance that she was coming, so that when Grandma showed up, it was a surprise. We didn't uh, anticipate it, and that was always really special. Um, I remember one particular uh, visit of hers, however, and it was a surprise, but uh, the, the circumstances, at least initially, weren't very pleasant. I was in either the first or the second grade, I can't remember which, 
And I went to elementary school down the road from our house, and I was walking home by myself after school. And as I walked home, I, uh, I, I needed to use the bathroom. It came on pretty quickly, as I recall, and it had to go really bad. And I was just hoping I could get home, uh, and I didn't make it. And um, just to put it delicately, I didn't just have to go pee-pee. <laughs> uh, and um, I lost it all. It all came out in my shorts, in my pants, whatever it was I was wearing. And humiliated and uh, crying, I made it home and knocked on our front door. And the door opened up, and it was my grandmother. Uh, I, as an, I think maybe my, my mother was, uh, my dad was obviously at work, and I don't think my mom was even home at the time. And guess what my grandmother did? Or I should start by saying, guess what she didn't do? She didn't go, ooh, and shove me away and say, go get cleaned up and then come in. She took me into her arms. She brought me into the house. She cleaned me up. And she put clean clothes on me. That's a small picture of what we just read about in Zechariah. It's a small picture of what the Lord did for Joshua. And it's a small picture of what He does for you who trust in Christ. These early chapters of Zechariah are a series of what we call, we refer to as night visions. This is the fourth. And this one is a courtroom scene. Uh, You have uh, the defendant who is a spiritual representative of the people of God. The covenant people. Now, Zechariah was ministering that post-exilic era. uh, the, the, the Jews had no king of their own. They were a subject nation. And so because they had no... They, yes, they had a governor, but um, they didn't have a king of their own. And because of that, because there was no king on the throne of Israel at the time, the high priest, who already had a significant amount of authority, sort of took on a greater degree of weight of authority among the people because there wasn't a king. The only figurehead, the only, the only ruler of their own that they had was this high priest. And we have a problem here in the courtroom scene because the high priest, the one who is supposed to be the representative of the people, the one who is supposed to represent the people before God, was unfit for duty because he was dressed in filthy garments. Well, what this passage teaches us is that the promises of the Old Testament are gospel promises, and they are founded upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. There are many, many glorious promises in the Old Testament that God gives to His people, but every promise of the Old Testament is a gospel promise, and every single one is founded on the person and work of Jesus Christ. The three points we're going to look at from this text today uh, are, first of all, what I call the gospel exchange, or the great exchange, I sometimes refer to it as the gospel exchange. Secondly, blessing and obedience. And then finally, the righteous branch 
It was mentioned there in those final verses. But let's look, for example, first of all, at the gospel exchange. Uh, Zechariah sees this vision of Joshua the high priest. Now, that was an actual person. You know that uh, from previous uh, chapters and also especially from Haggai when we were uh, going through that book together. Uh, Joshua actually was a real person. He was the high priest of the people in the post-exilic period during which Zechariah ministered. And in this vision, Zechariah sees Joshua. And in the vision, he's standing before the throne of God. And he's the people's representative, and he's defiled. And if the person who represents the people before God is defiled, that means there's not much hope for the people. They're defiled as well. Because the one who's supposed to be their mediator is dressed in filthy garments. So you've got this courtroom scene. You've got Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord and standing right next to Joshua, the place where an accuser stands, is Satan. He's there to accuse. Now, there's a little bit of debate about uh, whether Satan here in in verse 2 is to be taken as a proper noun or if it's to be taken more generally as just the accuser. I prefer to think of it as Satan himself because, again, we're talking about a vision. Uh, And in Revelation, Satan's very definitely and clearly described as the accuser of the brethren, us, God's people. And he accuses them, or at least he did before he was thrown down. He accuses them before God day and night. It's as if Satan's job, Satan is busy about standing before God and saying, these people aren't worthy. These people are sinners. And he brings the rap sheet for each and every one of us and he lays it out before God and says, how can you allow them to stand before you? They're not worthy. They're unfit. That's what Satan does. But we see that the Lord rebukes Satan. And he rebukes him not just once, but twice. And the doubling of that rebuke is for emphasis. Look at it again with me. Verse 2, The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Now, I don't know if as, as I read the text a moment ago or perhaps when you've read it in the past, it seemed a little bit odd to you the way that rebuke was worded that the Lord is rebuking Satan and saying the Lord rebuke you. Um, we could be looking at you know, different persons of the Godhead, you know, the, uh, uh, the Son calling on the Father to rebuke Satan, or as uh, one writer put it, um, I, I like this explanation, it says, it seems strange for the Lord himself to say the Lord rebuke you, but the meaning is I who am the Lord rebuke you. And it assures the reader that Satan's accusations are completely set aside. And you have this exhibition, not only of the, of the power and the, the willingness of God to rebuke Satan in our behalf, but his, of His compassion to, to us as He even goes to the trouble to point out to the accuser, is this not a brand snatched out of the fire? And that word brand 
uh, it's not necessarily the best way to translate it. It's more like a stick. If you can imagine a stick that's been in the fire and it started to burn, it's smoldering, and then it gets snatched out of the fire and saved from the fire. And God is saying, He's like that. Now we could think of the, the be, being in the fire as the exile and the fact that this stick was snatched out of the fire, the fact that God has finally brought his people out of exile, but then the, the greater application of this, this idea and of this image is that you and I deserve to be consigned to the flames of eternal punishment. And when God elects sinners, he snatches them out of that eternal destiny. But you see God's passion, compassion, that he, he has pity on this brand that was in the fire, and he snatched it out. Um, he chose that brand. He elected that brand and withdrew it. He snatched it from the burning. And you notice when it describes Satan in verse 1, it says he is standing at Joshua's right hand to accuse him, but you never hear the accusation, do you? It's almost as if he never got a chance to make the accusation. Before he could even speak, before he could even make any words of condemnation against Joshua, God has already dismissed those charges. And he gives this glorious command. He orders the removal of Joshua's filthy clothes. Now, we've seen now four visions in Zechariah. We're going to see at least four more in this section of the book. In a lot of the other prophets we've been studying together, as we've made our way through the minor prophets, we've seen lots of visions, haven't we? Well, here's the thing about visions. Visions symbolize. Words illuminate. And so we see this vision of the angel ordering that Joshua's filthy garments be removed. But then the words explain the symbolism, the meaning of that act. And so in verse 4, he gives the order, remove the filthy garments, and he explains what it all means. He explains the significance when he says, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. That's what the removal of the filthy garments represents. That's what it symbolizes. The taking away of iniquity the removal of sin. But he doesn't just leave him like that with the filthy garments removed. He clothes him with beautiful garments. I couldn't help thinking of that that phrase from Isaiah where we're told that the Lord gives us beauty for ashes. That's exactly what he does. When he says in our text, I will clothe you with pure vestments. And so as it corresponds, if the removal of the filthy garments means he's taken away sin, the clothing with beautiful vestments is the giving or the imputing of righteousness. Because it's not enough just to have sin removed. We have to have righteousness. And this he gives us. Now as he As he says, I will clothe you with pure vestments. In verse 5, Zechariah is speaking. 
And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. Now, this is significant because Zechariah was of the priestly family. He was the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. He was, of, he was a Levite. And from within one of the priestly clans. And he would have known that the high priest had to have that beautiful headdress or his outfit wasn't complete. He wasn't fully or properly dressed without it. And so Zechariah, in his heart, as a man who knew the priesthood, said, put a clean garment, put a clean turban on his head. And they did. They clothed him with a clean turban and they clothed him head to toe with purity, representing the righteousness of Christ. Now Joshua's filthy garments, as you no doubt understand by now. Joshua's filthy garments are a picture of human sin. A picture of human sin, including your sin and mine. See, what Joshua was standing before the Lord in was not just improper clothing. A bunch of us went to a wedding yesterday, right? And there was some discussion among a few of us, you know, a week or two before the wedding. Well, what exactly were we supposed to wear? Because there was a message that went out that said, it's casual, so we were thinking, well, how casual are we talking here? And nobody likes to show up somewhere improperly dressed, right? That's just the most uncomfortable thing. But it's not as if Joshua is standing before the throne of God and he's inappropriately dressed. No, it's far worse than that. It's not just that his garments are a little bit dirty. We have a, a long-haired cat. His fur is very light. And I typically wear dark suits. And so once in a while, when I show up uh, for church in the evening, my wife points out to me, you've got cat hair all over you, which is why I keep a lint roller in my office, and we're able to fix that, you know. But it's not as if Josh was standing there, and all he's got some, some goat's hair on his, on, his, on his robes or something. It's not even that his garments are dirty. It says they are filthy. Filthy. And to get a... Get a get an idea of what that word, the Hebrew word there means. Listen to this. The commentator wrote, the word for filthy is found only here in the Old Testament, but it is closely related to two Hebrew nouns used for human excrement and vomit. You know, that's why the, I started out with the illustration of that experience I had with my grandmother. Because it's not, it's not even as if you know, Josh was all decked out in the high priestly robes and then on the way to the altar he slipped and fell into a mud puddle. Now if you can imagine him covered with human filth and vomit from head to toe. And if you want to know how God views sin, think about those things. If you really want to know, I mean, it's been said, if you want to know how God feels about sin, look at the cross. Well, sometimes that doesn't do the trick for you. Think about filth. Think about what the Hebrew word means. And you get a, just a tiny inkling of the disposition of the heart of a holy God against sin. He hates sin. It offends him. It disgusts him. The same way seeing someone covered with vomit would disgust you. Because 
of the very true and very real offensiveness of his sins, Joshua deserved to be condemned. It's not that Satan at this point was lying. It's not that his accusations were false. Joshua deserved to be condemned, but instead, as one writer put it, Joshua was cleansed, clothed, and commissioned. And this is a striking illustration of what the gospel does. It's a beautiful one. The rightful penalty of your odious sins is death and eternal suffering, but instead... God washes away sin. He grants righteousness. And He calls into His service each one who looks to Christ in faith. And that's what I call the gospel exchange. Beauty for ashes. He takes away the dirt. He takes away the filth. And He gives beautiful, clean garments purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, secondly, we have blessing and obedience. After all this, after the exchange... And after these gospel words that we hear in the first verses of this text, uh, the angel of the Lord gives a command. It's in verse 7. We'll start looking again at verse 6. The angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, verse 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. So he demands obedience. He calls Joshua, his his newly, uh, cleanly clothed high priest, to walk in his ways, to keep his charge. And that could pertain, you know, that, that statement, that expression could relate to the priestly duties. But I think broadly it, it refers to obedience to God's commandments in the in the in the fullest sense. So he demands obedience of his servant, but he also promises blessing. He promises in the blessing of dominion. And he says, you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And he promises him the blessing of access. You will have the right of access among those who are standing here, those who are already in the heavenly court. He says to Joshua, if you keep my commandments, if you keep my charge, you can come in here. You have access to me. Now that's very remarkable because in the Old Testament system of worship, no one could go into the holy place except the priests. And when they went in, they had very specific duties to perform. And then they had to go out. They didn't just chill out in the holy place. They went in, they did their work, and they got out and had to wear beautiful, special garments when they were doing that. And then only one person ever got to go into the Holy of Holies. That was the high priest. But he couldn't just go in any old time. He got to go in once a year. And he had to take blood in there, consecrate consecration for the people. The high priest only had very limited access, but verse 7 in this text points to a greater access, far greater than any high priest had had. And it points to New Testament access to God through Christ Jesus. 
the thing I want most for you to notice, though, in this section I called blessing and obedience. Did you notice that the call to obedience came after God had cleansed Joshua and clothed him with righteousness? After he removed the filthy garments and put on clean vestments and gave him that clean turban on his head, after he did those things, then he tells Joshua, keep my commandments, keep my charge, walk in my ways. So what came first? Blessing or obedience? Blessing did. Blessing came first. Always brings to mind a a phrase. I don't know if he coined the phrase, but it's one that a pastor of ours from many years ago uh, would use frequently. Just sort of one of his uh, worldview statements. Blessing precedes obedience. We don't work and work and work. This, this flows right back into Pastor Mark's sermon this morning. We don't work and work and work and earn God's favor so that then He'll bless us. No, He blesses us. And then He says, keep my charge. Keep my commandments. You see that illustrated in how He dealt with the covenant people from the very beginning. He called Abraham first. And then He called Abraham to obedience. He brought the people out of the land of Egypt. He rescued them. He redeemed them out of the house of slavery. Then He gave the Ten Commandments. They had already been blessed. They had already been consecrated as His people. Then He commanded that they keep His law. It's the same with David. It's the same with all the saints of the Old Testament and New, and it's the same for you. God didn't foreknow you, call you, justify you because you obeyed Him. He did those things for you out of sovereign love and grace. And now He says, walk in My ways. Blessing precedes obedience. Sovereign, gracious blessing comes first. Then comes obedience. We didn't obey in order to obtain God's blessing. He blesses first. And then, therefore, we obey. But then finally, I draw your attention to the righteous branch. I call it the righteous branch. I use that as the heading, this heading in the sermon outline. Um, The word righteous is not used in connection with the branch here, but it is the righteous branch that he's talking about. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you'll see in just a minute. But there was this announcement made to Joshua and to the subordinate priests in verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, <coughs> you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. These people that sit before uh, Joshua, so to speak, that's a reference to the other priests. Joshua is the high priest, but there were other priests who served uh, or would serve in the temple once it was rebuilt. And God says, hey, listen, uh, you and, and these men are a sign, he says at the end of verse 8. They're a sign. And what are they a sign? And a symbol of. Joshua and his fellow priests foreshadow the branch. Well, what does that mean? It's probably, branch is probably spelled with a capital B there. 
in your Bible, as it is in most versions. This was a messianic title. And there are many in Scripture. Titles applied to the promised one, to the anointed one. And this is one of them. And this is not one that would have been unfamiliar. This didn't come out of the blue for Zechariah's hearers. Isaiah had foretold it already over 200 years prior. Uh, Let me show you. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. This was one of the earliest prophetic references to the branch, to a branch. Isaiah 11, verse 1, says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So here he's foretelling the son of David, who would come in the future to be a leader, a savior, a commander. Um, Now, Turn to Jeremiah, chapter 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely. And then a little bit later in Jeremiah, turn to chapter 33, please. You get the same basic idea in Jeremiah 33, verse 15. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Now, Isaiah prophesied uh, pretty much entirely prior to the exile of Judah. Uh, Jeremiah prophesied up until the fall of the southern kingdom and then a little ways uh, into the period of exile. But these men spoke of a righteous branch and they did so centuries before Zechariah. And so when Zechariah sees a vision and in the vision God says something about the branch, they would associate that with the prophecies given earlier. And it says that the Lord will bring His servant the branch. And just to kind of reinforce the idea that this was not some strange or unknown concept to the people, uh, one commentator wrote, the image lying behind this is found in the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, who all liken the house of David to a mighty tree cut down or severed in the exile and from which new growth will flourish after exile into something vast. Now, Joshua, son of Berechiah, son of Edo, was not the branch. He and his associates were a sign. In different ways, they were a sign of this future Davidic king. But since Joshua was a priest, that tells us something very interesting. It tells us that the the role and the, might we say, the office of this righteous branch was going to have some priestly aspects as well. 
which is very interesting because there's no ordinary human being who in the covenant people could serve both as a king and as a priest. Why? Because to be a king, you had to be of the tribe of Judah. And if you wanted to be a priest, or if you were a priest, you were of the tribe of Levi. And there wasn't overlap. But this righteous branch who's going to come, somehow, is going to be a ruler and a king, but he's also going to have a priestly ministry because Joshua and his fellow priests are a sign of him. So who could it be speaking of? There's only one person. Our Lord Jesus. Well, then you've got after that something that's even a little bit more perplexing. These men are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Now look at verse 9. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. Now what does all that mean? Well, there's a lot of different opinions about what it all means and how to, how to parse it out, but uh, like the branch, the stone points to Christ, it represents Christ. And so, when it says, I have set, speaks of a stone set before Joshua, I think it's using as a kind of a sign the cornerstone of the temple that they're constructing in these very days. Because the foundation had been laid, remember? And so the cornerstone of that newly under construction temple is sort of being pointed to but also it foreshadows or symbolizes a cornerstone that the Lord himself is going to set up one that Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah 28:16 where God himself says I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone a tested stone a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation And didn't Jesus himself speak of himself in those very terms? When he was deliberating with the Pharisees, and he says, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he's saying, that's me. I'm the cornerstone. And Peter affirmed that when he's preaching in Acts 4. Paul affirmed that in Ephesians chapter 2. Peter affirmed it again in his first letter, chapter 2. Jesus Christ is the precious cornerstone. And so this stone symbolizes him. And when it says it has seven eyes, it's just symbolic, prophetic language to indicate his perfect knowledge. He sees, he's omniscient. And the inscription kind of harkens back to the fact that you know, the high priestly vestments had precious stones on them and they were inscriptions. And in the New Jerusalem, all the foundation of that great city is going to have inscriptions on it. And the inscriptions on the priestly garments and the inscriptions on the foundation of the New Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from God, the inscriptions are the same. It's the names of the tribes of the people of God. And if that still leaves you a little bit bewildered, uh, the last part of verse 9 is not bewildering at all. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. 
That's the same divine work that's symbolized for us in verses four and five of this chapter. Taking away of the filthy garments, clothing uh, the priest and beautiful vestments. Now, the, when it says in a single day, that's very specific. There's no ambiguity there. This is going to happen in one day. Now, the Jews had a day of atonement, Yom Kippur, it's called. And uh, they understood on a sacrifice that was made on that day that somehow it signified the forgiveness of the sins of the people. But maybe they didn't fully realize that somehow it was pointing to the true day of atonement when the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross and laid down His life and actually made atonement for sins. Something that blood of bulls and the blood of goats could never do. That was the true day of atonement. Good Friday. The death of Christ, our substitute. <clears throat> the final verse of the chapter says, In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. You've got this, you know, it, it, in a certain way, it's kind of representative, representative of the fellowship dinner we had together today. Everybody brought from their bounty and we shared and we were together and it was wonderful. Here you've got a picture of each person within the community of God's people inviting his neighbor speaks of hospitality, speaks of togetherness. And vines sit under his vine and under his fig tree. The thing about vines and fig trees is both of them take a long time to grow. And they have to grow a long time before they actually bear any fruit. And so sitting under a vine or under a fig tree or you know, using those particular things as imagery. It speaks of prosperity. It speaks of peace. <coughs> and it's all related back to the work of the righteous branch. So, Satan wanted to accuse Joshua. And let us not forget that his accusations, the ones he wanted to bring, were legitimate. Joshua's sins and the sins of the people were real, and they really did deserve punishment. Satan wanted Joshua to be condemned, but instead of being condemned, he was cleansed. He was clothed in clean, glorious garments. And the same is entirely true for every single Christian. Men and women, children, anyone who's trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has taken away your filthy garments. He's given you beautiful garments. So in the words of Romans 8, what shall we say to these things? We still have an accuser, you know. But if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? We still have an accuser. But who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. <clears throat> Names 
change in spelling and pronunciation from one language and uh, one culture to another. So, for example, <coughs> pardon me, my name's Stephen, but in France, they would call me Etienne. In um, Sweden, they might call me Sven. Fran uh, Spain, they might call me Esteban. So on and so forth, Stefan in Germany. Well, the name Joshua takes on a new form when we come into the New Testament. The Hebrew name Joshua becomes the name Jesus. The name means the Lord is salvation. We talked about this at prayer meeting last week. When the angel came to Joseph and said that Mary was going to have a son, he said, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. It was the name Joshua. Joshua, along with the other priests, were a sign representing Christ. Joshua, the son of Nun, who brought the people into the promised land, and Joshua, the son of Berechiah, the high priest, were symbols of a later, greater Joshua who would rise up to be the high priest and king of God's people, to be a prophet like unto Moses, in short, to be the redeemer of God's elect. He is the righteous branch, raised up by God to bless you before you could ever obey. He takes away sinners' filthy garments, clothes them in the beauty of his very own righteousness. In our closing hymn tonight, we're going to sing, When I stand before the throne, dressed in beauty not my own, because it's the beauty of Christ and his righteousness imputed to us, gifted to us by grace. That's the message of the whole Bible. The promises of the Old Testament are gospel promises founded upon the person and work of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You took the punishment that we deserved and which, if the, if the accusations of Satan were to stick, that we would receive, but you suffered them for us. You've taken away our filthy garments and clothed us in your own beautiful garments of righteousness. How we thank you. We praise you, our Savior, and we pray that you will help us now, having been blessed, to walk in obedience.